Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello, it's uh, Larson Hicks with Pastor Rich Lusk again. You're listening to the Got a Minute podcast. Rich, good to have you again here, sir. Great to be with you, Larson, as Hi, always. Yeah. I'm I'm in my office again. I, I brought a, a light because uh, I noticed last time like the sunset and the lighting in my office changed dramatically from the beginning to the end. So got a little bit of a light pointing in my face. So maybe that'll be better. Hey, so, um, you know, we don't have a big we don't have a as per usual. We're kind of shooting from the hip here. But um, we ended up having about a 40 minute conversation prior to hitting the record button. <laughs> About a bunch of things. <laughs> we should have hit record 40 minutes yeah. ago. <laughs> I know. This is what we should do is, is yeah. Um, but it's all right. It's all right. We've uh, already had a good conversation. Now we have to see if we can recreate it for our Yeah, now we have to try to recreate it, which is it's, it's not going to be nearly as good probably. Um, but that's all right. Now, we were talking about I, – I, we were kind of catching up on work and life and and some different things and and kind of got into some conversations about leadership. And, and, uh, and then that kind of led into uh, – uh, uh, this news about this pastor up in, in uh, this PCA pastor up in Nashville, and and I'm not fully up to speed on the whole situation, uh, but it sounds like you've heard a little bit, you, you've, you've read a little bit about it. What's going on? Yeah, I haven't really read that much about it. I know nothing about the situation, uh, but anytime a pastor, you know, my I've spent a lot of years in the PCA, so I'm pretty familiar with that territory uh, yeah. in the series C now, but uh, anytime a pastor of a large church, you know, there's some kind of coming apart, uh, right. you know, and especially one that grabs headlines like this did, even in secular newspapers. I mean, that, yeah. that's something to pay attention to. So I, I don't have any inside information. I don't know really what happened there. But, uh, it, you know, one thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast is leadership. There are a couple sure. things that, that, that I thought about. It sounds like Scott Sauls is being... I don't know if you could say pressure to resign or he just chose to resign or what, but he has yeah. confessed to various things, uh, being a manipulative leader, uh, or maybe I don't remember the word abusive was used. I don't remember exactly what the language was, but basically that, uh, and, and, the, and the thing about that, the thing that about that, that is so odd or interesting is that Scott Sauls is one of those guys who's been really on the forefront of the sort of third wayism in the PCA, you know, trying to find a, uh, a you know, peaceful resolution between sort of the extremes of right and left. He's been right on the forefront of sort of the winsomeness campaign, like, you know, let's just be winsome, uh, that kind of thing. So it, it was it was odd to me and intriguing and certainly counterintuitive in certain ways that, uh, that he would be targeted as this manipulative and tyrannical leader who, you know, like he says, he manipulated facts and that kind of thing to try to ramrod decisions through and that kind of thing. And it made me wonder, you know, all of that might be true. And I don't know anything about his situation. So anything I say from this point forward, I mean, it may or may not apply to him. I have no idea. But it's still yeah. interesting to me as I think about kind of the larger forces at play in something like this. Um, you have a situation now where, you know, a lot of churches have become, uh, I mean, even even fairly conservative churches, like say in the PCA or other, you know, SBC, other fairly conservative denominations that have become pretty woke, you know, that have embraced a great deal of the woke agenda. And yeah. I think the problem with that, you know, what I have seen is wokeness is an acid that will ultimately eat through everything because you can yeah. never be woke enough. And I think any pastor who adopts a, uh, a wokeness, uh, let's just say a wokeness approach to things yeah. is, is really 
uh, undermining his own ministry and his own ability to lead. I mean, think about this. It's it, wokeness is kind of an offshoot of Marxism. Sometimes it's associated with cultural Marxism. Sure. Yeah. Um, critical theory is another label that gets used. But basically, the idea is that all relationships have an oppressor and an oppressee. Well, right. obviously, then if you're the pastor of a congregation, you're automatically going to be the oppressor. So yeah. if you adopt that that mindset, that mentality, then any decision you make, any uh, you know, any direction you try to take the church, anything you do that is assertive as a leader, uh, it can be interpreted as oppressive. You know, you're oppressing right. other people. Uh, you're not being sensitive to other people's feelings. This is the whole thing too. We've seen in in recent debates, and we actually did an episode on this way back, talking about Edward. Uh, Friedman and his work, uh, it's, it's empathy run amok, you know, it's, it's empathy without a moral compass. And so, you know, if you train people in empathy, empathy kind of becomes the ultimate virtue. Mm -hmm. Well, anytime a leader makes a decision, there are going to be some people who are on the short end of that. There are going to be some people who have their feelings hurt. They didn't get their way. And if empathy is the controlling thing, then you basically have undercut your ability to make any kind of decision as a leader, any decision that you make, mm-hmm. um, be, you know, again, because every decision is, is got is going to in some way create winners and losers are going to create people who got right. what they wanted and people who didn't. Uh, if you've got this untethered empathy uh, on the loose, right. you know, let's say in your congregation or any community, uh, then it becomes very easy to uh, basically uh, view the leader as oppressive. So to me, I, I'm not saying that, Skull, that, that, that Scott Sauls wasn't an oppressive leader. I mean, I, I really have no idea. But to me, it's also entirely possible that in that environment, he created a situation where any form of leadership would be considered abusive or oppressive mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's the spirit of the age now. In this hyper-egalitarian, critical Marxist, woke environment we're in, any kind of leadership is going to be considered oppressive by certain people. And uh, I, I wonder if... if you know, if he brought some of this on himself with that, again, just speculation on my part, but I can certainly see that happening. Again, I think any pastor, you can say any leader, but any pastor who adopts wokeness and, and yeah. who kind of goes in that direction, I think it's setting himself up. hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> I mentioned when we were talking earlier that, that I just started listening to, um, the, uh, Joe Rigney, uh, six part kind of series on uh, Canon Plus's app about leadership and it's it's been really good and and it's it, it, you said he's channeling Friedman and 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 definitely I mean it's it's clear that that's a that that's a big theme um, he's coming to it from a he's coming at it I, I appreciate the way he's like coming to Friedman via Shakespeare and uh, and scripture it's it's pretty it's pretty good um, but the but yeah the the you know, the, one of the things that, that he talks about is just this idea of, of degree of separation of differentiation between leaders and, 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 uh, the folks that are leading the people they're leading. And, um, and you know, it's, it's like, uh, I mean, we've talked about it, but it's like, how does the general of the, of the, of the army make any decision if, if he's, if he's overly empathetic to the soldiers, you know, I mean, he, he's got, he's, you, you want a general who has the experiences sat in those, in those, you know, been in those boots before mm-hmm. knows what he's asking people to do. Uh, but ultimately, you know, and this is the reality of leadership is, is, and you and I've talked about it a lot. It's just worth repeating. It's worth repeating. Cause I think people, you know, church, church members need to remember this. Um, 
Yuri Brito was out here recently to ordain uh, Brian McLean. And he gave this charge to the congregation that, you know, you're, you need to have a ministry of encouragement and support, you know, and submission to this pastor. You know, it's, it's, he needs to love being a pastor here because of how grateful and, and, uh, uh, how much respect and honor you show to him. And, um, and that's not something you get to say in anywhere today. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, where, where else, what other organization are you allowed to say something like that? The, the leader, you need to show love and gratitude and honor to your leaders. That's a really important thing. Like, is anybody saying that to anyone anywhere? <laughs> you know, it's, it's all, you're right. I mean, wokeness is 100% 180, you know, from that it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, leaders, tripping over themselves to apologize for their, you know, um, for everything. And, 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 uh, just this over I'm reading rich as, as we were, ta- as you're talking, I just Googled this and the two things right out of the gates, the two quotes after an investigation, uh, re- the investigation revealed quote, a pattern of relational, emotional, and spiritual neglect which I'm like, take those one at a time, you know. And what Bible verse? Yeah, what know, are we talking what about? What are we even talking about here? The, the, the definition of sin is so nebulous. It's almost like, uh, and again, this goes back to things that Friedman addresses. Um, it's like there, there's no sin in the Bible that is identified as hurting people's feelings. Jesus was sinless, but he hurt people's feelings. 100%. The Apostle 100%. Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote things that no doubt hurt people's feelings. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, when I, when I read the article and, 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 and Saul's, you know, you got the quote from Saul's where he's confessing to me, it almost sounded like a struggle session kind of thing. <laughs> we have, we have successfully extracted a confession from you, you know, uh, I'm not saying again, that is, I don't know the facts, but that's yeah, just sure. kind of has that feel. And certainly if that's not his case, it's certainly others. I mean, imagine the sales pitch, you know, for a church that's trying to fill their pulpit, trying to call a pastor that has adopted some version of, of wokeness or, you know, neo-Marx thought, you know, so they, they say to a pastoral candidate, we are a bunch of wokesters. We are uh, a bunch of neo-Marxists. We believe that every relationship is characterized by an oppressor, oppressee, dynamic. Do you want to come be our next pastor? (laughs) So that the very moment you try to exert any leadership over us, we can accuse you of being a tyrant and being abusive. What a, thanks. No, thanks. I mean, this is, this is, I'm sure one of the contributing factors to, to low, you know, marriage rates these days is, is that's the dynamic that, that, that pervades our, our culture is that, you know, if you're a husband, you're already, I mean, you're in the doghouse from the day one because you are a husband. You know, you're a man, which means you have power over a woman, you know, uh, and, and you're bigger physically. So that that's also more power. It's like you already have two strikes against you three. You know, you're you're male. So that's a that's another strike against you. It's like, you know, you're you're uh, it's who wants to sign up for that? You know, I mean, who wants to be in that in that kind of uh, relationship. Uh, and, and, uh, so it makes sense that a lot of guys are, are just kind of going, look, I'm just going to do my own thing, 
you know? A lot of guys are going to bail for sure. And that's what we see happening. It's one more way our culture is being uh, degraded. Uh, I'll say one other thing about this and we move on to another topic. You mentioned yeah. the, uh, the Joe Rigney series. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you're further along in it than I am. I just started watching it. Uh, so I'm not that far into it, but I really do like everything I've heard him say. Yeah. Uh, and, and just to just for any listeners who may be wondering who we're talking about uh, with Joe Rigney and Edwin Friedman, Friedman is somebody we have discussed several times before. And Friedman was not a Christian. He's since passed away. Uh, but he wrote a book. I don't know. It's probably been 20 years now, maybe more. I don't know. I don't remember exactly when it came out. I probably first read it like 15 years yeah. ago or something. But uh, he's got a book called Failure of Nerve on, on leadership. And, and the book is an excellent assessment of what it means to be a leader in the modern world and the kind yeah. of things that you're up against as a leader. So one of the things he talks about is that uh, leaders cannot be overly empathetic. Leaders do have to care about the people they're leading, but empathy yeah. can cripple and even paralyze a leader into inaction because, again, you can never make a decision that's going to make everybody happy. So if, yeah. if by empathy you mean you have to feel what everybody's going to feel, and unless everybody's going to be pleased with the decision, you can't make one. Well, then no decisions ever going to be made and the, yeah. and the whole institution you're supposed to lead is going to stagnate. He also talks about being a differentiated leader, which means as a leader, you're able to be connected to those you're leading while you also differentiate yourself from. Yeah. One thing that means, for example, is that you have a well-defined circle of responsibilities. I think a lot of leaders tend to have this very sort of nebulous, poorly defined uh, sense of what their responsibilities are and their responsibilities sort of. Um, they end up absorbing almost everything into themselves and feeling responsible for absolutely everything, but you're really yeah. not. And, and you need to yeah. have uh, clear boundaries in terms of what you're responsible for and what you're not. Uh, because again, if, if you don't have a clearly established boundary there in terms of what you're responsible for, it's going to be impossible. Like if a leader feels like he's responsible for every single person in his institution to be happy all the time, yeah. Well, that's just impossible. Like, like you're going to, you're going to burn out very, very rapidly. Uh, but if you right. understand that's not your responsibility, that your responsibilities are much more tightly defined than that, uh, then you can be a leader, you can move forward and you can deal with the fact that not everybody's going to be happy with you all the time. Right. Because your job yeah, is I mean, not making everybody happy all the time. An, an accusation that a pastor, and again, I, I, I know nothing else other than this little snippet I'm reading. Okay. So I'm not, I, I, but I'm just going to pop off on the fact that, that if the ac, the first accusation I'm reading in this article is an investigation revealed a pattern of relational, emotional, and spiritual neglect. Okay. I'm going to set the spiritual one aside because that may, there may be something more to that, but unless you're talking about a wife you know, who is saying my husband, you know, my husband's been stone cold, distant, you know, won't, doesn't love me, doesn't talk to me. If you're talking, if you're talking about that in a marriage, then yeah, that would be something that, you know, if that was a pattern in a marriage of a pastor, I'd go, yeah, that might be something that disqualifies a guy for, for, or, or you know, he needs to take a step down and get that sorted out kind of thing. Right. But but it's not talking about that. It's talking about it's talking about his role at the church. Who said that you're as a pastor responsible for the relational and emotional attention to what the staff or or you know well, like pastor is a huge church with a huge staff. So yeah, what does that mean? What are we talking about? You know, um, who does he owe that to? You know, where in the job description is it? relational, emotional support, you know, I mean, I, I get counts. If you're saying that the guy is, 
if you're saying that the guy is, you know, biting people's heads off and, and, uh, abusive or what, you know, is, 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 um, you know, dressing people down and, and, you know, I, I'm sure there, you know, like there, there are certainly ways that, that you can be abusive. There's real abuse, but, but, like, real abuse, yeah. but that's not what this leads with. And, and I don't even know if the word abuse comes up in the article relate and we're talking about neglect. So they're saying there's a sin of omission. He should have been more emotionally encouraging and supportive to people on his staff in relation. Like, what is that? Like, I, you know, I'm just trying to imagine what, what we're actually talking about here. Um, this sounds like a complaint that came from an HR department. <laughs> Golly, I hope not, man. I hope that, I mean, if somebody, if an HR department was going to come to me and tell me that we're, we're going to have to discipline an employee because of emotional and relational neglect, I'm going to say, sorry, guys, that's, you're not at the right company. Like you're right. at the wrong company. I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this is the, I think the thing that it's important to jump up and down on here is that actually the most critical thing in leadership is your willingness to offend people. It is. It's your willingness to say things that nobody wants to hear and and that people are going to be upset about, personally offended about. And 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 you have to say it anyway. You have to say it anyway because it's the right thing, it's the biblical thing. Um and that's the heart I mean that's the biggest service that that I remember the first time I fired an employee. Um not I mean I was sh- I was literally physically shaking. You know, I mean, like I'd never done this before. And it's like, this is awful. Like, this is terrible. Who I've never done this before. I've never wanted to do this before. And, you know, maybe I've thought that it'd be great to be the guy that makes those decisions. But when you're sitting there across the table from a guy who has mouths to feed and you're saying, this is over, I'm firing you, I'm going to stop paying you. That's, that's heavy, you know? And, and, uh, in this case, the guy had been there prior to me coming on as, and becoming the, the the CEO, and 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 the people that were there wanted to knew that he probably needed to be fired, but were scared to do it, you know, because it's terrible, it's no fun, you know. But anyway, um, you know, that's if anything, you know, you need to fire a pastor who's unwilling to say hard things and right. offend people. I mean, that's the greater. It's definitely the greater sin, an actual sin, you know, um, because he does have responsibility for. Yeah, think about it. I mean, is there anybody that could have prophetic. accused uh, the Apostle Paul of being abusive? Yeah, or the I mean, prophet Paul, 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 you know, Paul will excommunicate people by name in a letter. <laughs> I mean, talk about yeah. naming people. I mean, you think that Alexander and Hymenaeus felt abused by the Apostle Paul, that they had right. their feelings hurt because he hands them over to Satan? You know, yeah. in, in his letter that's yeah. going to be read publicly to the church. Yeah. yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I mean, again, you're exactly right. That that is the mark of genuine leadership is being able to do hard things. Now, obviously, there is a ditch on the other side. You know, there yeah. there, there there is a certain kind of person that is uh, unnecessarily offensive or sure in in terms of the differentiation maybe he's got that but he does have the connectedness that friedman also talks about i mean you you, people do need to know that you hear about them 100 and and that you are connected to them yeah Um, no and 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 in the uh, rigney thing i'm i'm a little further in than you are but but he started to talk about the most important way that a leader 
um, does his work, you know, uh, of leading is through his presence. Um, and, and it's not just any presence, it's a calm, um, controlled, uh, confident presence. And, and as I'm reading through this thing, another thing that, that stuck out to me is this statement, uh, where, uh, this is the pastor speaking he says, I verbalized insensitive and verbal criticism of others work. He said in an apology to a congregation this year. So, so one of the things that that, that, that reminds me of this may be a rabbit trail, but, but, but part of, part of leadership is also not being transparent with everybody about your feelings and about a lot of things. You're covering a lot of things. You are hiding a lot of things. You are keeping a lot of things out of view, not obviously for nefarious purposes. If you're doing that, that's a different thing. You're not, a, but, but, but one of the things that creates, you know, Rigney talks about anxiety storms, you know, these, these sort of frenzies of emotion, uh, that sweep through organizations, uh, churches or businesses or families. You know, a lot of that is, a lot of that is you've completely destabilized the, the a leader who is not calm and under control emotionally and, and is not oversharing, you know, is, uh, if you're doing those things, you are, you are destabilizing the whole organization where everybody, you know, um, examples from, from day-to-day life, like in business, I, I just had this issue come up this last week where there was a problem with an employee's paycheck and it was a problem that we just needed to sort out, you know, behind the scenes, figure it out and then communicate what we had done, you know, but make an executive decision about how we're going to deal with it or cover it or whatever. But instead somebody just, you know, and, and I've talked about it as one of my employees made, made a decision to, to tell the employee, you know, that, you know, your, your paycheck may be totally wrong kind of thing, you know, and, you know, learning moment for us, but it was like, Hey, that's not a, that's kind of a failure of leadership. Uh, we need to, we need to own this, not create anxiety, you know, and, and solve this problem and, and, and then come to the, to the team with our solution. I think about, I think all the time when I'm thinking about this kind of stuff, I, I've probably mentioned this before, but do you remember Caesar Milan, the, the, the dog whisperer? Mm-hmm. Have you, have I, have I said this before? I don't think so. If you ever watch a Caesar Milan episode, uh, he basically has it all figured out. Um, he, he's the guy that takes, you know, they get these like crazy neurotic dogs that are biting everybody and freaking out. And his, I, I love this, his solution a hundred percent of the time. I mean, it's never different is he says you have to have calm, assertive energy, calm, assertive energy. And he grabs the dog, puts the dog on a leash and he starts walking forward. And that's like, it's like magic and they call him the dog whisperer because you watch the psycho dog and this little Mexican guy, you know, walks up, grabs the leash and just starts walking. And the dog is like, Oh, a leader's in the room. Like, yeah. like yeah. somebody I can follow and all of the anxiety goes. And when the dog starts freaking out, he just, just, just touches it, just gives it a little, just asserts a little bit of force and, and communicates to the dog physically. I'm in control. You're not in control. Stop what you're doing. You know, yeah, yeah. and it's like, you know, if, if every leader in the country, if every, every husband in the country, you know, could just learn the basics of 
Caesar Milan, you know, calm, assertive yeah. energy, yeah. move things forward, just move yeah. forward, yeah. you know? Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, that, that ties a lot into uh, what Friedman says about the, 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 uh, the presence of the leader being a non-anxious presence, being yeah. a calming presence. I mean, the, the way I put it, I've said, you know, in order to be a leader, you always have to be the calmest person in the room. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and, uh, because, you know, so, so I think, I think part of why Friedman's book has been so, uh, why, I mean, it's called failures nerve. I think it struck a nerve with a lot of people. I think part yeah. of the reason for that, especially since 2016, I may have told this story before, but when I did read the book like 10, 12, 15 years ago. And I mean, I liked the book and there were some things I, you know, I jotted down some notes and, and there were things about it that I would even say were transformative for me then. Yeah. But then I kind of forgot about it, quite honestly. It wasn't something that I referred back to often. And then around 2015, 2016, I heard a lot of people starting to talk about Friedman again. And I was like, you know, I read that book, yeah. um, but I didn't remember, you know, X, Y, or Z that somebody said about it. So I went back and I read it again and I was like, right. oh my goodness, this book explains everything we're seeing. Right. Because basically right. what it says is when there's a, when there's a leadership void, like when people don't have a leader they can trust and nobody really knows who's in charge, right. then what happens is it, it's like the whole culture, the whole society becomes kind of a, a powder keg that's ready to burst into flames the moment something sparks it, you know, because you because uh, everything is is then reactive. There's kind of this reactivity. Uh, to, you know, to anything and everything. And I think that's largely where we are. And I will tell you this, I think the biggest thing is not that we don't have a president we can trust. It's right. not that we have such ridiculously bad and evil and incompetent political leadership in so many different you know, layers of government. It, it's really not that, although that certainly factors into it. I think the biggest issue we have is that uh, we the church has failed. Uh, yeah. The church is supposed to be the salt and light in any society. The church really is the leader of any society. And mm -hmm. when the church has failed, when the church, um, when, when, when the church cannot speak with a single voice because she's so divided, when the mm -hmm. church has compromised herself with worldly culture instead of having the courage to stand apart and speak right. God's truth, that's. I think you get a lot of reactivity and a lot of anxiety, a lot of yeah. anxious energy, a lot of nervous energy then flowing through the culture because yeah. it's like, we. the reality is Jesus is in charge, okay? If we know that, if we know Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then there's no reason to ever be anxious no matter what, no matter how yeah. bad the president is, no matter right. you know how whatever's happening around you, it doesn't matter how much is swirling around you because you know Jesus is in charge and you can yeah. trust him. And he's that calming, non-anxious presence ultimately. Yeah. And he's the ultimate yeah. leader. He's he's the king. Yeah. And so we look to him and trust him. But when that gets lost and it gets lost because the church does not put Jesus forward, yeah. you know, because the church is compromised in all kinds of ways and the gospel gets lost or garbled, then you end up with a society that's incredibly full of anxiety. Yeah. And that's what we've got because we've lost sight of the reign of Jesus the yeah. rule of King Jesus over all things. And yeah. without him, it's impossible for us to find that non-anxious presence. And that's all. right. And, 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 you know, the church leaders need to be non-anxious. Uh, uh, but, but as members, you know, uh, we have a prophetic role in the world and, and, and we are a faithful presence of God of, of you know, we're Christ's body, his presence in the, in the world. And we should have that, that confidence. And, and, you know, I, I think a lot about Christ's, uh, commandment not to worry, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, to be anxious for nothing. You are not allowed to be anxious about anything. 
That's a sin. Don't do that. Okay. It's, it's okay to say, I fail at this frequently. I struggle with this, but, but fill in the, you know, finish the sentence. I struggle with this sin, you know, it's a sin. I'm not supposed to do it. Jesus told me not to. And uh, easier said than done. You know, we, we all have those circumstances that pop up and just, and you get that tightness in your throat and, you know, chest or whatever. And, and, and you feel that anxiety, but it really is, it's a commandment. And, uh, and I think that's a discipline you've got to cultivate as a leader, you know, as I don't allow myself, I, I, I talk about, um, one of my employees told me this, that he had read it somewhere. I can't remember where, but he said, worrying is like praying that your worst fears would come true. Yeah. It, it's like you're meditating. It's like you're visualizing and, and imagining what could happen, like how bad it could be. You know, you're, you're sort of, it's like, uh, you know, people talk about visualizing, uh, uh, thinking positive thoughts and kind of, you know, in order to kind of, help you get motivated to do positive things. It's like the exact opposite of that, you know? Um, and our father in heaven, our loving father in heaven said, don't worry. You're not supposed to, it's not good for you. It's bad for you. It'll tear your, your soul apart. Don't do it. And more than that, you know, to your point, it's also the strategy for successfully leading in the culture. You know, when, when everyone's losing their minds and the Christians are calm you know, it's like, ah, there, there's something there. Who was it? Did you read that thing this week about, or in the last week or two, there's an article that's been circulating about this uh, lady who grew up Muslim and, and then became yeah, I didn't an get to read that. I, I yeah. want, it's on my list though. So I want to get to that. Maybe we can come back and talk about that. Yeah. I, I read, you know, a couple pages of it. It was pretty long. Um, but yeah, yeah. You know, it, that, that, that's a, that's a great example. It looked like one thing she was saying, and I, I'm drawing a blank on her name, but she was a Muslim who maybe became an atheist. And she did, yeah. That's what it sounded like to me. Uh, that uh, no other faith, worldview, religion, philosophy, whatever, provides the tools that we need mm-hmm. for the kind of civilizational warfare that is upon us. Yeah. And obviously that is the case. Now, Christian, you know, the Christian faith is about more than just civilizational warfare. Sure. It's about sins. It's about yeah. eternal with Jesus. It's about communion with the triune God. But all of that feeds into a particular way of life and ultimately the formation of a culture and disciple nations through the Great Commission and all that. And so it does seem to me that she was really onto something. And I would, I would totally agree with that. And that ties back in with what I was saying. You know, when Jesus, when, when Jesus is not acknowledged by a culture as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, of course, that culture is going to be full of reactivity and anxiety and nervous energy. You know, Jesus is the ultimate calm, assertive yeah. presence. Yeah. You know, he's got ultimate, infinite, calm, assertive energy uh, to, to, you know, to work all things together for the good of his bride, the church. Yeah. And so that that is what ultimately relieves our burdens, our stresses, yeah. our worries, our anxieties. And there really is no other way to ultimately resolve yeah. the things yeah. we're, we're worried about. So, well, and, and, and I think the the this, this principle kind of came home for me when I was, I was working, had a job as fairly early in my career and, and, you know, had a, um, had a conversation with a, a, an impending conversation with a boss that I I knew that I had failed at something. And I was probably, you know, maybe I could be fired. You know, I mean, worst case scenario, I'm going to get fired. Mm 
And I remember just being a, a ball of anxiety and coming home and talking to my wife about it. And my wife just said um, something to the effect of, you know what you did, right? You know, and, and I'm kind of going, I don't think my boss understands because I, I did this and I tried this thing and it didn't work, but I was trying and I, and I thought I was doing the right thing and it didn't work out, you know, and I didn't hit my number or whatever. Um, and she's like, but you know what you did, right? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, and, and you, you know, God knows, right? <laughs> I guess like, so don't worry about it. You know, um, God knows, God knows your heart. Like, yeah, you, your boss may not understand, you know, your, your boss may disagree. Your boss may fire you, you know, it's right. okay. God knows what you've done and you've got a clean conscience and, you know, uh, you can admit your failures and, and, uh, and move forward, you know, knowing that God, God loves you. And it was just like, you know, uh, there was that turning point in my life where I was like, yeah, that's, there's, I, I think of it as, I call it a, a, a quorum Deo swagger, you know, like we have this sort of, we live before the face of God. We know that we're in God's presence, you know, that, that he's here with us and everything we do is before his face. And it's, and it's like, if, if you really know and believe that, um, you know, you, you get to walk with a kind of swagger and confidence that nobody else really, really has, can have. Yeah, that's really, really good. That's great. Well, Rich, with the minute? yeah, yeah. I got my copy. Uh, I got my copy and I am, I am, uh, I don't know, 10 pages in maybe, you know, I, I, I pulled it out and it looks great. I'm so excited about it. Tell us about it. It's, it's the, what's yeah, it called? So, so this is my book called measures of the mission just came out from Athanasius press and, uh, you know, really excited about it. Um, I just, uh, I, I, for our listeners, if you haven't heard about it, you know, you can get it from Amazon or Athanasius, uh, if you're interested in, in, in looking at this book, this book is, uh, I, I've called it my everything but the kitchen sink book because it really is kind of about everything yeah. in a way. Um, I, I actually had just some background on the book. I had a lot of help on this one. Yeah, uh, A lot of the books I've done have been, you know, co-authored. They've been joint projects as I see it. You know, pretty much everything in life is communal. Yeah. It's always, you know. Someone needs to co-author a book with me. That'd be awesome. Community. <laughs> uh, in this particular case, a really sharp uh, layman in my church named Kevin Fox uh, had come over from another church and he really wanted to, uh, you know, be able to explain and articulate to people why he had, uh, come and joined our church. And so, I mean, this, this, this started happening, you know, probably over 10 years ago, anytime I said something in a sermon or, uh, well, I think it was mainly sermons really that was like, oh yes. Okay. That's why I'm here. You know, that, that's what people need to hear. You yeah. would go jot that down or transcribe it from the audio recording of the sermon. And, and he had told me he wanted, you know, a book he could put in people's hands that would, you know, that would basically explain what we're about at TPC and really yeah. the series C. And so after he had done this for several years, he brought me this binder, you know, full of, uh, what, what he put together. And I said, Kevin, I think you have your book. So really, Kevin was originally going to be a co-author because it's really, you know, it's his, probably in a lot of ways as much his book as it is mine. And certainly he did a lot of the legwork on it. But uh, in the end, he chose not to be a co-author with me. So it's just got my name on the front. But Kevin was very instrumental cool. in it. But, uh, you know, if, if you look at the book, I mean, basically the first part of the book is really a, a summation of, uh, of the Bible as a whole. And we kind of walk through the overarching story that the Bible tells, which is really the kingdom of God story. The original working title for this book was the gospel of the kingdom. And that's kind of a bland title, but, yeah. but the reason for that is 
you know, in the book, we basically say, look, Jesus did not preach the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And we need yeah. to understand the difference because if we just preach the gospel. We're missing a key yeah. element of Jesus message. We're being reductive. We're shrinking right. the gospel. Right. That kingdom part matters. So what is the gospel of the kingdom and, and how understanding the kingdom makes our understanding of the gospel so much bigger, so much more expansive. Yeah. That Jesus came not just to save souls and get them into heaven when people die. He actually came to bring in a whole new world. Yeah. Uh, to restore God's fallen creation. Ultimately, of course, that, that's consummated with the new heavens and new earth at the last day. But yeah. even now, the kingdom is already present in the world, that yeah. the, the, the mustard seed of the kingdom has been planted and it is growing into the greatest of all trees and it's going to grow and fill the earth. Yeah. Every, vi every, every image we have of the kingdom in the Bible is of something that grows. So we really tell the story of the Bible, you know, going through creation, fall, redemption, you know, what is what does the resurrection mean? What are the consequences of, of Pentecost in Acts chapter two? Uh, what about Jesus' Olivet Discourse and the ending of the old covenant in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple? We look at all of that mm -hmm. and basically say, here's the big picture that this, you know, in terms of the story that scripture is telling, here's where things are going. You need to latch onto that. We don't use the label post-millennialism, but that's really what we're talking about sure. is, a, is a view of the kingdom as growing and victorious in history, yep. leading to the final victory at the last day. So that's really the first part of the book. The second part of the book really focuses on the church as central to God's kingdom. If Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, that really means he preached a gospel that is connected to the church. It's the gospel of the church, you could say. And so we talk about what the church is. And we talk about the mission of the church and the nature of the church's communal life. We talk about the church's role in discipleship and, and how uh, discipleship really can't take place outside of the context of the church. And we talk about the liturgy, covenant renewal worship, which is something uh, that's distinctive in many ways about the series C, but I think it's very much rooted in the church's historic patterns of worship and especially in the scriptures. And so there is God's given to us a liturgical pattern. It's important that we uphold it because it's so formative. It shapes us and worship is central to everything else we do. Worship is really the fountainhead. And if you pollute the river at the fountainhead, then everything downstream is going to be polluted. You know, yeah. but if you've got pure living water flowing out, then that's going to bring transformation and renewal to everything. And then the last section of the book uh, is kingdom living. What does it look mm -hmm. like to live out the kingdom and to live out the implications of the kingdom in everyday life? And so we talk about work, you know, it's a big part of this. So we talk about our daily vocation. We talk about marriage and family life. We've actually got a chapter on singleness as well, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, about singleness and even what it means to call singleness a gift. Hmm. Uh, we got a chapter on marriage, a chapter on parenting, uh, cover all those kind of things. And at the end, we've got some appendices that kind of go into some political theology as well for people who are interested in that. Um, so like I said, it's kind of the book about everything. It's kind of my everything but the kitchen sink book. Um, it doesn't go it. into great depth about any of those things, obviously, because yeah. it, you know we're covering a lot of ground. Um, my slogan for the book is the whole gospel for the whole of life. You know, that's how we really are summarizing this. The whole it. gospel coming to bear upon the whole of life. And that's really what it's about. That's awesome. Well, it's, it, you know, it's funny because I remember a time in my life where <clears throat> I heard a lot of teaching and preaching on, you know, with the word kingdom, you know, and it's one of those words where, you know, <clears throat> uh, 
it, it, it just kind of can bounce off your head. You know, uh, you just kind of, it's kind of like any, any buzzword, I guess, like, like covenant or, or gospel, even, you know, all these words can sort of just lose their meaning. Um, and just, you kind of pass right by them when you read scripture. Um, but there was a moment, um, it, there was a moment where the concept of kingdom, the kingdom, you know, of the gospel of the kingdom, you know, when you hear scripture say the gospel of the coming of the kingdom, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's a moment where that all clicked. And I was like, wait a second, this is it. Like, this is what this whole thing's about, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think if you grew up in the evangelical church, modern evangelical church, as I did, the gospel, it stops at the gospel. It's not the gospel of the kingdom or the right. coming of the kingdom. It's, it's, right. it's just the gospel. And, and, uh, but what is the gospel? You ask someone what the good, what the gospel is, the good news, of the coming of the King, you know, of Jesus, the King, the King of what the kingdom, you know, like right. coming of the kingdom. Right. So it, it, it really is one of those things. And, and, and once, you know, once you see it, you can't really unsee it and you start to see that. And I, and I do think, uh, it, you know, the, your eschatology and that, that, that optimism about, what the gospel is going to do in the world, uh, beyond private feelings. Um, yeah, yeah. that when those two things kind of start to line up and you start to, you know, start to see that, that we're talking about the gospel changing the world, you know, not, not just changing everyone's feelings or loves, but it's actually going to change the world. But I think the mistake, and this is where a lot of the criticism about Christian nationalism have come in recently is the mistake is, is kind of cage stage post-millennial or cage stage kingdom people. They run all the way to the end and go, oh, so you're saying someday our politics and our laws and our civilizations are going to be Christian? That's great. Let's start doing that. Let's start taking over, you know? And it's like, well, hold on. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. You know, it's, it's uh, how does the kingdom come? And that's where you get back to covenant renewal worship. You know, it's how does the kingdom come? It's not going to come through politics, but will politics be transformed? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. 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 Yeah. Will our society, will art, will science, will all of that be transformed? hundred percent, but none of it comes through those things. That's the fruit. That's not the root, you know? Yeah. So I see two basic issues with American Christians when it comes to the public square. You have those who uh, who think the way we're really going to change the world is through politics. Right. And so they're basically playing the same game as the secularists. You right. Know, I mean, it, 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 it becomes a humanistic kind of thing. It's what we can do in our own strength. And so they think, you know, we just need to get the right guys elected and the right laws passed and that will manifest the kingdom. Actually, you know, what happens politically is way downstream from what happens yeah. culturally and ultimately what happens liturgically. So yeah. uh, you're, you're not going to get the political transformation unless you've already had the cultural transformation, which is only going to happen if you have the liturgical transformation. So yeah. there's that. So the other the other problem, so that, that, that's one problem I think American Christians have is thinking we can bring in the kingdom through politics, to put right. it crassly. No, probably nobody would put it quite that way, but that sure. is the question. Sure. Uh, the other, the, the sort of the mirror image of that problem is a privatization. Right. And it's saying, well, we keep our Christian faith separate from politics. The Christian faith is, you know, it's spiritual, it's, it's heavenly, it's eternal. It has nothing to do with these temporal, historical, earthly, earthly concerns. And that's also false. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And our mission is to disciple the nations which exist in history, which are very earthly, which have uh, political, they're organized politically. So uh, you cannot privatize the Christian faith. You can't turn it into something that's purely personal, that only impacts people's personal lives. The gospel uh, is all about the lordship of Jesus. And so, of course, it's got to be uh, transformative in the public square. We want to see Jesus uh, Jesus acknowledged everywhere. I've been really critical of some of the stuff on the Christian nationalism side, like Stephen yeah. Wolf and some of those guys. And yeah. I think there's some problems with that. Uh, and I'm not even sure that the label really is super helpful. We, you know, we could debate that. But, but the reality is we do want Christian nations. Uh, we, we want Christian everything. We want Christian towns and we want Christian cities and we want Christian families and we want Christian schools and Christian universities and Christian hospitals. And ultimately, yes, we want Christian nations and Christian civilizations and Christian empires. Uh, so uh, there are some people today uh, who are denying that it's impossible, you know, they basically are denying uh, the possibility of a Christian nation. They will say only individuals can be Christian. Right. And I think that's just a misunderstanding of what's meant. When we say Christian nation, we don't mean the Christian faith is being imposed on people by force. And we don't even mean a nation where every single individual is converted or right. you know, even becomes a Christian in some nominal way. But we do mean a nation that in its official form, in its official capacity right. as a nation, acknowledges Jesus for who he is, his word for what it is, and the church for what she is. Yeah. And, and so public life is organized on those basic principles. Do you think, do you think some of the, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, this, uh, this is just occurring to me at this very moment, but this idea, like there's, um, you know, we try to, we try to triangulate how, how do we get to where we are today? Why do people think the way they think? And, and, and you, you talked about individualism. We've talked about kind of a pessimistic es- eschatology, all of these things play in, but, uh, but there's, I think there's so much confusion about what is a culture or what is a nation, what is a civilization that that I think I just I just this week I think it was I think it was a a British I just I listened to some speech I don't, did, I don't know if you saw this some British um, you know leader okay and some lady who I don't think she's a Christian or anything um, but she's she was basically saying multiculturalism is destroying our nation. And we've got to, if, if the idea of being British in her example means nothing, then, um, then we're just saying everything good about our way of life that we love and appreciate doesn't matter. We don't care about it. And we're happy just to see it go. And she's just saying, this doesn't work. This is cultural suicide. You're saying anyone come in and bring whatever you want in. And we're just going to, like the idea that you come to a nation and you assimilate um, is gone. The wokes, the woke folks have 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 called that oppression. Um, and what it really is, I mean, if you if you really look at it, it's an it's invasion. It's the opposite. It's 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 a it's a foreign you know culture coming in and invading and taking over. You know, and they're keeping their cultural distinctives and pushing it. But, right. it, you know, it, it's always been historically that if you want to become a citizen, you've got to become, you got to you have to assimilate and adopt our way of life. You know? Yeah. So, so this is so think about what's happening here. OK, so uh, the West has largely apostatized. So we have turned against our Christian 
heritage. Mm -hmm. Well, the only thing that gave the West coherence was the Christian faith. The only thing that tied all these disparate people groups together was the fact that they had some connection with Jesus and his church. Um, Hilaire Hilaire Belloc, who is a uh, Roman Catholic scholar, once said, he said, Europe is the faith. And what he meant by Mm -hmm. that was like, if you want to see what the Christian faith looks like what it does in the world, look at Europe because after, after a thousand, you know, a couple yeah, thousand the, years, the, the leaven of the gospel worked its way into the, you know, the dough of European cult. Well, I mean, I yeah. can't even say European cult, just into the culture of all these tribal groups and knitted them together into a cohesive people. Uh, so you had, so you had all these different ethnicities, these different tribal groups who basically all come to share a, a reasonably common culture so that we can describe Europe as a thing. So we can say right. Europe and mean not just geography, but a culture. You know, we right. can talk about Western civilization, a way of life that all these people share. And the Reformation did not shatter that. You know, the Reformation um, wanted to continue Christendom, but it wanted to, uh, in a sense, build Christendom on an even sturdier foundation than what was happening, you right. know, by, by right. Uh, making sure we're building squarely upon the word of God. Now, of course, other forces came along and set and secularized things. Um, and, and I think ultimately this is largely due to the unfaithfulness of the church, Protestant and Roman Catholic, you know, in the following centuries. So, so secularism arises, which then is really at, at war with the Christian faith. And what happens is people in the West now are really undergoing a crisis of identity and we can't embrace our past because our past is Christian. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so what do we do? Uh, multiculturalism is not about a love for other cultures. It's so right. important to understand that when people talk it's about hatred of your own culture, it's hatred of your own culture. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so you have people who they're filled with self-loathing. Yeah. They, they hate their own nation. They hate their own heritage. I mean, it's so interesting. This, uh, this transgender shooter in, in Nashville, Nashville yeah. uh, the uh, parts of her manifesto have come out and there's probably more that will eventually come out, I'm guessing, but, yeah. but it literally was filled with self-hatred. Okay. Mm-hmm. She was taught to hate white people and what she calls white privilege and all of that. And so, uh, you know, and she talks about, you know, these private school kids and their khaki pants and, and their crackers and all this kind of thing. And, and, but she's that, you know, that's part of who she is too, because she's white. Uh, And so in attacking these, you know, these kids at the, at the private school, she's really in a way attacking herself. It's really a form of self-hatred as much as anything else. Uh, So, which, I mean, you could say the same about transgenderism. Transgenderism is hatred of one's own body, hatred of one's own self. Right. Um, The dysphoria is really a, a, you know, form of self-hate. So that, that's what we have is we have a culture that has no confidence in itself because all the principles it was built upon, it now despises and rejects because they came out of the Christian faith. And so Britain has no way to say no to Muslims coming in right, right. who have no intention of assimilating. Right. Um, and, and really, in a lot of ways, it's, it's the same in America now. We have no way of saying no because we don't have any sense of our own identity. Or we right. don't say you can come, but you have to assimilate because we have nothing to assimilate them to. The reason America worked as a nation of immigrants is because pretty much everybody that came, that came shared a Christian heritage, some form of the Christian faith. And that's right. what allowed us to assimilate together and, and form this new nation of America. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, you know, the fact that you could have been, you know, English or Scottish or French or Polish or Italian, and you could come to America and make a life and find a way to fit in because there's kind of this, there's at least this broad family resemblance that we all have in terms of our worldview. So we right. might have various differences and you can even hang on to some of those differences, but you're still going to assimilate because America's got the Christian faith at its core and you identify with that. Yeah. But you take the Christian faith away. Now it's just a house of cards and it easily falls over. And that's where we are. Europe's getting there faster because, you know, we've got the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean that make it a little bit tougher for people to get here yeah. who are as as uh, contrary in their way of life. Uh, of course, we've got problems on our southern border. That's a little bit of a different issue. But again, it comes back to the same thing. Western man is now filled with self-hatred. He hates yeah. his heritage. He hates himself. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know who he is. Yeah. I listened to uh, 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 a little bit of, of Elon, Elon Musk's recent interview with uh, Joe Rogan, and he was asked, why, why did you buy Twitter? And his answer was, he said, um, he said, uh, Berkeley, I think it's Berkeley, uh, California, where, wherever they are, uh, Twitter's headquarters, he said, is a, is a far left extremist death cult that hates civilization. They, they call themselves, there are people there that self identify as ex extinctionists. They want the human race to, yeah. to, to yeah. be, so these people hate people on planet yeah. earth. They All those who hate me love death. Right. So they, love they death. hate, they hate life. They hate, they hate humanity. And he said, his his fear was that this far this extremist far left extremist uh, death cult had this global reach through Twitter, um, and that this stupid mind virus that should sort of be contained to this small geographic area was getting was getting propagated globally through through Twitter because these guys because to these guys everything in their mind was extremely right, you know, uh, because everything is extremely right to them. There's nothing that's further left. So, so they start filtering and muting and shutting down anybody who's saying anything that's anywhere right of them. And, and you've got m billions of people who are checking their Twitter feeds every day and, and are slowly being, you know, so he was like, I, I just said, I was just scared about the impact that Twitter was going to have on civilization. <laughs> And wanted to, yeah. and wanted to just stop it. You know, um, that was interesting. I'm glad he did. I mean, Twitter, you know, or X as it's yeah. called now, not perfect. I, I, obviously, yeah, yeah. by any means, and it's filled with all kinds of garbage that comes from the right and the left. But I do right. think it's better. Under I don't think he's. I think I read somewhere. I, I heard him say like he hasn't. He hasn't banned anybody or, or, or censored anybody yet. I mean, there's there's yeah. there's stuff they have to take down because it's illegal, like you know, pornography or right. Or right. whatever. Right. They had no, yeah, no pornography there, but right. yeah, so that, yeah, you're 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 exactly right. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's multiculturalism is a form of self hatred. Uh, radical environmentalism is a form of self hatred and yeah. and and hatred of humanity. And of course, right. people hate humanity because they hate God. I mean, yeah. you are the carbon source that they want to eliminate. Okay, it's not your car. It's not cows. It's ultimately you that they want to get right. rid of. Right. Uh, and it's important to understand that all these things are suicidal and they are the outcome. They are the product of rejecting the God who made us and right. the Savior, his son that he sent. That's what it. Comes well, to. it's it's I just thought it was an interesting rabbit trail. Maybe maybe 
valuable, but, but just, you know, when you're talking about the source, like what, how have we gotten to where we are and why is the idea of the kingdom so diminished? Well, I'm thinking one of the things we've been indoctrinated in for, for quite a while, um, is this multiculturalism, this hatred of our, of, of cult, of our culture, you know, in particular, Right. Um, Cultures do have the right. Nations do have the right to defend themselves yeah. uh, in various ways, not just against, say, a military invasion, but against yeah. uh, an invasion of immigrants who don't intend to assimilate, who would who would overthrow their way of life. Yeah. We're not doing that right now. And again, I think the reason that, say, the Democrats have had no interest in protecting our southern border is because they do hate America. Yeah. And, they, and, and they do want to remake this country into something radically different than what it's been. And this is yeah. because they hate the Christian heritage yeah. that, that stands behind our nation. And so this is a way to eliminate it. But um, and, and that's, yeah. you know, that's why we are concerned about it. It's not that we're anti-immigrant. I, I'm fine with having lots of immigrants come in. Yeah, I think our nation can handle lots of immigrants if they come here to work and not just receive welfare benefits. If they come here to assimilate, you know, to a reasonable degree. And, and, you know, and, and not just come and, and basically continue to do their own thing. So yeah. um, which is which is how America's always looked at immigration. You know, that yeah. that is the historic American position. And I think that's where we ought to be. But, it's the only rational position, um, ultimately. Yeah, and we've been we've 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 obviously been in a nation that for most of our history has been very welcoming to immigrants. Yeah. Uh, but but with those particular conditions or yeah, caveats, part of our identity. that's that's something now that's being you know, if you say something like what I just said, you'll be accused of racism. Well, it's not racism. Right. Yeah. Not racism at all to want to defend your own country any yeah. more than it would be racism to want to maintain your own family's identity and heritage right. and culture. Right. So, yeah. Right. It's only racist when, when white Christians want to do it. That's right. Especially hey, white Christian males. That's right. That's right. We're the hey, ultimate villains in the story. That's right. That's right. Well, Hey Rich, it's been a lot of fun, man. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been, it's been a minute here. Uh, as it turns out, I, we, we were thinking this would be a short one, but uh, we, we found a way. We did. We did to fill not just one minute, but about 60. So, yeah. But Larson, it was great. Great talking with you, as always. always. Yes. Yes. Looking forward to the next one, sir. Sounds good. All right, man. Take care. All right. Have a good night. Bye-bye. The God a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.